listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, Jeff, we are going to kind of pick up where we left off from last week. Last week, we talked about the findings of our latest thought leadership research. This week, we're going to sort of preview my talk at this year's Thought Leadership Conference, sort of work the talk together, <laughs> kind of live, real time. So listeners are going to kind of get uh, you know, little inner workings into what I plan to talk about at the conference in November. And they're also going to see me sort of struggle through how I want to talk about it with your help. So that's what we're going to do today. And the topic is actually, I framed it as resolving the five tensions of thought leadership strategy. And there's probably more tensions than that, but these were the five that I identified that seemed most pressing in most organizations when they're trying to get strategy figured. That's cool. We get to be voyeuristic and talk about our favorite topic at the same time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All a little weird. So but yeah, that's the plan. So we'll see how it goes. Hopefully listeners will enjoy the show. All right. So we have all these tensions. Let's jump in. All right. Where do you want to start? You want to start at the top or you want to start at the bottom? You want to go backwards or forwards? I want to you know, start. But real quick, sidebar. My daughter, her history class, I think this is the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. He's teaching history backwards, which I think is the coolest idea I've ever heard of. So they started in like, you know, the 90s. And they're working their way backwards in American history, which I just love. That is cool. I like that. And what I love about it is when I was a kid, we took American history. And by the time we got to the stuff that was most relevant to me at the time, like learning about the Vietnam War, there was like a day left of school. So you didn't, <laughs> you never covered it. So I was like, this way they get to the stuff that's most relevant right away. And then, of course, they thread back in time, you know, how things happen to get to where things are today. So I thought that was really interesting. So anyway, my point is we can start at the top or we can start at the bottom. <laughs> You jump in, history professor. Okay. Well, let's start at the top. And we'll start with actually what I think is the biggest tension that firms face. So whenever, whether you're the marketing leader, whether you're the thought leadership director, whether you're the content lead or the firm leader or managing partner, I think the biggest tension when it comes to prioritizing resources on thought leadership, so setting thought leadership strategy is juggling today's revenue versus tomorrow's revenue. So what the firm is known for today and where it earns its living now and where it will earn it five years from now or seven years from now or three years from now, whatever your future time horizon is. I think that's the biggest tension. I think it's the most important one that marketing has to get reined in. In my experience as a CMO, you're spot on. Because the gravitational pull, and particularly how firms, larger firms in particular, allocate budgets is based on revenue. And the biggest lines of business get the biggest marketing budgets. Therefore, they're going to have the biggest thought leadership initiatives. And it's backwards. It really is backwards. Why do companies do that? I mean, in your experience, why do you think companies feel this need that, and we saw this outside of professional services as well. I mean, as you know, I've been in the agency business for 20 years. And before we started specializing in professional services 10 years ago, we worked with all kinds of companies. And we saw this in product companies as well. The, you know, the, the largest product by revenue got the lion's share of the marketing budget, even if maybe it didn't make sense for that to be the case. I think there's two reasons. One is it's fair. People like to be fair. I say fair, right? Everybody gets 10% of their revenue in the marketing budget. So if you have more revenue, you get more marketing budget. But the real reason is it's the path of least resistance. I was just going to say, is it just just because it's easy? It's easy, right? I don't have to fight 
this battle with the biggest line of business leader who's going to feel like he's being robbed of his profits, of his revenue. It's a dynamic that is really ugly in firms that don't have a unified vision and culture and future of the firm, where it's, I'm going to get mine, you get yours on your own. I think selfless leaders and those leaders that are stewards of their firms understand that they're contributing to the future of the firm not having something stolen from them. So it's as much a cultural phenomenon as, as a strategic phenomenon. It's also a people phenomenon, right? Because you know, if, if you're the leader of the largest practice and someone says to you, oh, this practice is, it's at its apex. It's sort of declining for some reason, way, shape or form. Maybe margins are under pressure and, and the firm is saying, we actually think there's more opportunity over in this other practice that's much smaller, but it's on, we'll talk about this more, the edge of the performance envelope, as you, you've, you've shared in the past, and there's more growth potential, there's more you know, future profit potential, future revenue potential. Is that a blow to the ego that makes it hard for someone to swallow and say, I, I don't want to be the one in charge of a mature practice that's potentially in decline? Yes, I think that's a, a big component of it. There may be a difference of opinion. You know, a line of business leader may be seeing the slowing in the in the maturation of their line of business, but in their mind, they see the next evolution of the practice. And and, and this is the tension. I, I think there's several tensions within this one tension, right? Mm-hmm. Is the first one is all right, if we're gonna reallocate disproportionately the budget across practices what's the percentage range, right? What's reasonable enough to make strategic investments into a new line of business in order to get it to grow? And what's acceptable portion of those profits to take out and still reward the people within the the big practice? So the tension is, is it 5%, 7%, 9%? The other tension is, can this line of business reinvent itself? What's realistic? A good example of this would be in the HR space. Towers Perrin, Hewitt, firms that I worked at, you know, were built on the backs of the actuaries and defined benefit programs. And those went away and everything became 401k. Is there enough revenue in the 401k actuarial work to warrant strong investments? Or is that brand exist enough that you don't need to make those investments in Mm -hmm. that? That's a tension that exists. And I think to the purpose of intellectual capital and thought leadership is you could be investing in answering that question. Yeah. Well, that's that's a really great point, by the way, is that that, you know, sometimes that's the reason you're making the investment in the first place is to figure out maybe how to take a, you know, a commodity service or or a set of expertise that's that's under margin pressure, commoditization pressures, and find better ways to solve the problems that the service is designed to solve so that you can recapture margin. Or it's to discover better ways to solve things that you've never seen before. So it's a valid point. One of the things I was going to say was that it seems to me that a big part of this is, is trying to take the emotion out as much as you possibly can. 
and bring data to the conversation. You know, so I was also thinking about as you were talking that you've talked about this for years, this idea of brand relevance and brand preference. And the idea that most firms are known for something, you know, and maybe the firm's roots have, you know, come from one practice over the last 20 years, and that's what they're most known for. And yet the firm is trying to become more relevant in other adjacencies. And I've always kind of come back to, it's like, if you've built up relevance in this zone for 15, 20 years, you know, reducing your investment there is probably not going to have much of a net effect, but increasing your investment in those adjacencies where you're trying to build relevancy, where you're struggling to get through the door, you know, will have a bigger impact potentially. Yeah. It doesn't take a lot of investment to label something old, new and improved. Yeah. It does take a lot to move into a new product category or an adjacent product category. And most firms, when they, when they're not managing this tension properly, they're spending lots and lots of money just to label something new and improved. And it's just not worth it. Yeah. Now, so one of the things that we've been started doing, or I did recently with one of our clients was we, because I've always come down on the side of probably overly simplistic, but that marketing is about tomorrow's revenue. Business development is about today's revenue. So what that always meant was that I would tell a client, sort of again and again, your thought leadership investment should be about creating tomorrow's revenue. So where is revenue going to come from tomorrow? Where are tomorrow's revenue drivers? Where are tomorrow's profit drivers? You know, where do you need to be relevant in the future? And so we would over-index on basically away from the easy allocation you've described. You know, so I would almost always tell the client, like, you know, mapping your investment against revenue allocation is wrong. And the better allocation is is growth. It's you know, where is growth going to come from? Now that's probably a little overly simplistic because I don't think that's any necessarily better than taking the easy path of just allocate it with budget because it's basically just doing the inverse of that. <laughs> so you probably need to be a little more thoughtful. Well, that's the thing that differentiates the top firms from everybody else. Some firms, you know, take the easy road and allocate budgets like we just described. Other firms make a big jump and just go into the new market, but the best firms bridge. They're operating in that in-between space where they're taking that historic investment that's built a solid brand and using it to catapult the brand to its next positioning in the market. And that is a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah, it is. And I think it's funny. I have an analogy in my head. Have you ever read the book, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham? It's on my to-read list. And I think you're the one who put it on there. I did. I put it on there. So full disclosure, it was sort of edited by a guy named Jason Zweig, who writes for the journal. And he, with every, it was written in like 1920 or something. It's like a hundred years old. And so with every chapter, he writes a companion piece to it. And it's actually more interesting to read his stuff because it's more common, current than, than, than Graham's thinking. Anyway, my point in, I got way off track there, but my point in explaining this book was that 
My takeaway from the book is Graham delineates speculation from investment. And speculation is sort of like not thoughtfully putting money into growth type things that seem like they're going to be hot without really understanding what's underneath them. And investing is making very purposeful, strategic, thoughtful decisions about how you're going to protect capital and grow capital. And that's the point that's interesting to me. Because I think when you're thinking about how you're allocating your resources, you're thinking about how you protect income flows and how you grow new ones. And so you have to make this this decision. And you can't just like willy-nilly just throw it all in one place or throw it all in the other. You've got to bring some data to the conversation and be clear on why you're you know, allocating in a certain way. Well, so here's what I've been doing lately, and this will be kind of like my, my thoughts on how to approach it. I don't know if this is the end-all be-all, but what I've been doing with clients lately is trying to get them to establish business goals on different time horizons. So we'll have you know, three to five year time horizons. And we'll say the goal is to be the recognized global experts in blank. And the long-term horizon is a little fuzzier and it frees us up to say, well, we can make investments in research. We can make investments in earned media. We can make investments in deep categorical, meaningful content to discover new things that will lead us on this path to being recognized as a global expert. And then we'll break it down into a shorter term goal you know, 12 months out, that is much more like tangible and touchable. It's like, you know, that sounds like we want to generate X amount of new revenue for this practice. That implies X amount of opportunities, Y amount of leads, and we're much more tangible, which then of course sort of nudges you down the path of much more performance-driven marketing type stuff, stuff that you think is highly measurable right now and can contribute to this year's revenue targets. So it's kind of this idea of like trying to get them to think on two time horizons. And then that way we can make, you know, targeted choices on each time horizon, which makes it a little bit less simplistic and a little bit more thoughtful about how we're going to put money where and why. So that's kind of what we've been doing lately, which I think is better. I'm not going to say it's perfect, but it's better. That makes a lot of sense. It's simple, but it's not easy. No. And the art is, to your point, is managing the tension is what's the asset allocation to bonds versus yeah. <laughs> stocks? And within stocks, what's small cap, mid cap, large cap value? There's there's a combination of, of things that go into that. Which is incidentally why I like that analogy, and I may start using it more with clients, is you know, you think about an investment portfolio, it's emotionless. You don't like have emotion necessarily tied to you know, different asset classes, at least most people don't, you know, and, and I think that you have to look at a, a firm, particularly a diversified firm in a very similar similar vein. And so when you look at it in that lens, it makes it much easier to have those conversations and say, well, okay, well, what are the fundamental metrics here, right, that matter? So I like that. The tension, again, is what's the amount? So if, if you wanted to invest in AI and you only allocate you know, 1% of your portfolio into AI, even if AI has an outsized return, because you've put a limited amount in it, your return is going to be limited in its total value. So you have to be willing to take some risk and allocate more of, of those dollars into those potential markets. And that's where the emotion and intention exists. And the answer is the one you gave. You have to bring data, yeah. but then ultimately you just have to make the choice and stick with it. 
I think that's an important point. And you said you make the choice because there's this there's this line I see in business a lot where people will say, "Well, the data says this, so I guess we're going to do that." And the assumption is they, they sort of let the data make the decision, and that's not the point of bringing data. <laughs> the point of bringing data mm-hmm. is to have information to make a better choice, not to rely only on the data and let the data make the choice, which I see happen a lot. Not in just marketing, but just in general, you just see that kind of bantered around business all the time anymore. And I think it's a dangerous thing to assume that data is always right because frequently it's wrong. Frequently it's sending you down the wrong path entirely. You make better choices when you have information. So yeah. And and I would argue when you're making these these allocations to five years out, data is going to be sparse or it's going to be incomplete. Yep. All right. We had five of these tensions. We're never going to get through all five. So actually, why don't I flip it to you? Let's pick a different tension and spend some time on it. Which of the other four did you find most interesting to talk about? I want to talk about existing customers versus new customers. So this one I put in there because, you know, again, you come back to my predispositions. My predispositions was always to prioritize future growth and always to prioritize new customers and say, you know, thought leadership at the end of the day is all about demand gen or lead gen was how I always came at it. And, you know, it, it exists solely to bring new clients to the firm. And I, I wrote about this in the piece that I just wrote about these tensions not that long ago, where I worked with a software firm in San Francisco a few years back with the CEO of the firm, a firm called Knowledge Architecture that I really respect, and a guy by the name of Chris Parsons, who I really respect. And Chris basically came in, he's like, he's like, it wanted to work with me on some thought leadership for the firm. And what we were really working on was essentially what would be in the software industry be described as like customer enablement content, sort of like understanding how companies share knowledge across their organizations and how they do it well, and then shining spotlights on the teams that do it and how they do it and what they do differently. And it was all about basically when people came into software, making them successful. And his belief system was super simple. He's like, Jason, he's like, you know, if we can make every customer super successful in what they're doing and use our software to do it, you know, then they're going to stay with us. And as we bring new customers aboard, we'll constantly have this kind of like really strong base, high retention rates, that kind of a thing. You know, and I have to admit it, it worked really, really well. And so it sort of opened my eyes to that, like thought leadership can first and foremost be about sales enablement. It can be about helping existing customers do what they do better. And then as new customers come aboard, they benefit from it as well. So I guess my my long-winded way of saying, I don't actually think that there, it has to be one or the other and that there's a right or wrong answer here. Whereas years ago, I would have said there's a right answer and it's new customers. Hmm. For me, the focus... I would not make the bifurcation of existing versus new. I understand that approach. It makes sense to me, but I wonder if it doesn't add to the tension in the human dimension of it. (laughs) You know, the answer is being clear about who your ideal client is, whether they're existing or new, that doesn't change. If a firm can find out where a client type really gels well with the firm, allows the firm to show up as its best self and deliver its ultimate value hands down because of of an issue or cultural alignment or some other dynamic that exists. Does it really matter whether it's new or existing? Because the mindset of a top performing firm is always going to be about creating more and more value for the client. 
And if you understand the value that you bring and the client appreciates that value, what difference does it make if it's new or existing? I think that's really well said. I mean, I think, it, you know, it's funny because the, what I see happen in firms is that there are certain people in the firm that want to reduce budget and thought leadership if it's not delivering new logos, new customers. And they, and they will see anything that's done there as a failure if it doesn't do that. And I think that your lens is a much better lens. It's, you know, throw away the bifurcation and just focus on who is the ideal client and how do we create the most value for them that we possibly can, whether they're already in a relationship with us or not. And how do we use thought leadership to, to enable that to happen? In some ways, it kind of goes back to some of what we talked about with the unified commercial engine and this idea of building the organization really about the client and their journey. And any thought leadership you're, you're investing in is a function of, of making them more successful in their journey. And that work will yield deeper existing client relationships, new client relationships you weren't expecting, new client relationships you were expecting or hoping for, all of the above. So actually, I think that that's the best way to manage it is to try to eliminate. I think you're right. Just to say, you know, let's not make this delineation. And I'll just speak from personal experience. You know, we've been very diligent as an agency to track sort of like lead sources and campaign sources and every opportunity that flows through the business for years. We did this and we would pay close attention to how much of our revenue came from existing customers versus how much came for our new customers. And I remember our client service lead at the time finding that frustrating because he's like, you know, it's not like I put less energy towards new clients when they come in the door or more energy or anything. He's like, yeah, or less energy towards existing clients, right? It's like they, they all require the same amount of effort to get them flowing into the business. And it was then suddenly this realization that it's like, well, yes, we need to understand how much of our revenue is sort of replacement revenue every year, but that doesn't mean that that changes the things that we might do as a marketing unit, if you will, or a sales and client service unit. That's spot on. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, Divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. The other thing I think is really important in this in this new client versus existing client ties to another one of your tensions and that's the codifying of expertise versus discovering new solutions well i think there's there's two real critical elements that come out of existing clients one is referral strength which is a key driver of, of new relationships if you will but the the other part of that is R&D because existing clients who trust you and understand you and know what it's like to work with you are great Petri dishes for new solutions and R&D. So if you have a mindset of, I call these friends of the firm, of, of working with friends of the firm and really collaborating around new potential solutions which really means additional value for the client, which solidifies the relationship and strengthens that connection between the two firms. But it's it's probably one of the best places to kick out new solutions, getting back to our first tension. 
You know, it's funny because, you know, we talk a lot about, I mean, this is all leading up to this conference on thought leadership that we're doing this year in November, the sixth year I've done it with Bob Bidet. And, you know, one of the things we study in that research that we shared last week is where does great thought leadership come from? And we always come back to generally the most breakthrough insights come from original primary research. So studying a problem in depth and understanding how the best companies solve it better. Now, all that said, I think the mo- one of the biggest untapped opportunities in thought leadership that gets completely ignored all the time is co-authoring with your clients the way you just described. I mean, Every firm, to your point, in its portfolio of clients needs to have a couple of clients that are on the edge that have deep trust in the firm and want to invite the firm to solve new problems that they've never solved before, either one of them, and to do it together. And when you do that, the the best thing you could possibly do, I believe, is to get into a situation where you're working together to solve a problem that's never been solved before, and then you're working together to, to share how it was done. And that's probably the most powerful thought leadership that could be produced, yet it almost never happens. Like You never see that type of thought leadership ever come to market. And I think there's a lot of reasons why, but, but I actually think like to the heart of what you said is that's actually probably where the most interesting things are going on for you to be, you know, building intellectual capital around and be building content around and just create whole new, you know, streams of revenues and opportunities. So I like the way you said that. I'm starting, I'm starting to see these interconnections and and synergies between your five tensions because you're another one of your tensions is speed versus quality. I've experienced this in every firm I've, I've been to as a, as a marketer working in conjunction with the research arms always seems like it just takes forever to get (laughs) these thoughts out of the firm where we intuitively know early on in the research what the dynamic is, right? What the problem is and what the approach would be. But we we have to dot every I and cross every T and and build consensus and and get all these sign-offs across the firm. By the time that it, it, it gets out there, it's like, old news in a lot of firms. I understand the need for quality and I don't want to discount quality, but it seems to me that this collaborative development is a way to both achieve quality and speed at the same time. Because when you when you do it, oh, we're just going to do research. It's going to be a research study, right? In, in a traditional sense, You know, you have to have relevant sample size and you have to do all of the rigor around research. And those things are speeding up with technology, but they slow things down. And I think the market accepts case studies and real life examples of of where solutions have been implemented just as readily as they do some, you know, scientifically valid research study. Well, the funny thing is, is that we've talked about this in the past, but like there's a good chunk of the of the populace that is data illiterate, you know, and and in very senior business positions, right? I don't mean, and this isn't a criticism; it's just it's just the reality. There's a good chunk of people that don't really understand data and percentages very well, and so that's why they don't trust. A lot of people just don't trust or believe data, but they believe stories. 
You know, so a lot of times that case study is actually more valuable than the data point that says 65% of, of the 1,500 companies surveyed said this mm -hmm. because people just don't trust that piece of data, which is why you have to kind of bring both to bear. You know, Bob's going to do a really interesting talk on sort of the evolution of thought leadership research in the, in the conference. And one of his contentions is that it's, is that, you know, th th there's a blurring line between primary and secondary research due to just the digital footprint of every organization on the planet. And the fact that, you know, you can mine the web for insights and all kinds of things that you couldn't have done 20 years ago. And companies aren't tapping that enough. So it's so kind of like the same, same message I had a second ago. It's like they're not tapping, you know, what's available publicly in the open market that can let them go faster. And they're not tapping the opportunity of, of doing things with their customers more. And those two things together can make a huge difference in the combination of speed and quality, right? Because, you know, you when you stop trying to hang out in an ivory tower and talk down to the world and you spend some time with the client directly one-on-one, -on -one, suddenly insights happen much faster and there's probably not enough of that. So. so let's wrap this up on your last one. Okay. Your last one, I would argue is, would I put it into the biggest issue? If it's not the biggest issue, it's the second biggest issue that makes marketing and thought leadership very difficult. And, and it is a mindset that I think marketers can help their lines of business with a new perspective. And that is products and services slash solutions versus wants, needs, and clients' issues. You've said this, and I love this line, is practitioners fall in love with their solution. And it is, to me, that is one of the biggest inhibitors of effective marketing is be, turning your firm into a hammer looking for a nail. I think the reason that is, is because organizations, we talked about this in our, in our setup, organizations grow and get to scale because they're good at building process and structure around how to solve a problem and do it again and again and again. Hence, they see that problem everywhere. And so it's hard to turn that off. It's hard to say, well, okay, you know, this is the problem. We solve it again and again and again. So let's just market our ability to solve it. You know, and it's it's sort of like in my head recently, I've been wrapping around this notion of features and benefits. And it's amazing, you know, how much marketing still is feature, 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 feature. Here's what's great about our service. Here's what's great about our firm. Here's what's great about our solution. Here's what's great. Here, check out this other case study we did. Okay, great, great. That's awesome. Why do I care, right? <laughs> so what did the client get from this? Like, why are they here? So I, I do think this wraps back to what you said about the ideal client, that it's maybe it's mostly about being clear on focusing on the client's wants and needs, marketing to that, and then letting that lead to the solution rather than trying to market the solution, which I think is what firms really stumble on. And, you know, I see this a lot, especially in small to mid-sized firms, where they'll have a, a channel that I guess would be described as thought leadership. It's a blog, it's a resource library, it's somewhere where you go looking for educational stuff. And what you find there is, here's a better way to do this type of thing. And that's not really, I argue, not really all that, that's not really thought leadership, because all it's doing is basically sort of pushing a product message the whole time. I don't want to come off as academic and purist here and leave people with like, well, why does that matter? It matters because at the end of the day, if you're helping the client solve the problems they want to solve, the likelihood that they hire you goes up, 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 <laughs> right? So like, whereas when you are pushing a solution at them, they're retreating and the likelihood of them hiring you goes down, down, down. 
So it's not about being idealist. It's about just making marketing more effective. This is the the toughest tension to manage. But when practitioners get it, their their eyes pop. You can you can just see it's like ah, I get it now. And it's why I've gotten to this point, and and my methodology in addressing this is called the issues to solutions matrix. And the answer is it's both. There is a solution, there is an issue, and you're constantly talking about both, but it's how do you talk about it? Um, We know what the ultimate outcome is we're trying to get, but how do we get to it? And it's almost like dating, right? You know, if, if we were to say, you know, the ultimate outcome is to find the partner of your dreams, it's the dating and the seduction and the interest in the people that get you to that outcome. Although both people know what the outcome is they're hoping for, but we don't need to say it all the time. And for for business buyers, I really believe, and this may be an oversimplification, but it pays dividends to think this way, is that buyers are buying a solution to one of three problems, and it's all tied to value. They're either trying to grow or they're trying to increase productivity and efficiency, or they're trying to manage financial performance and mitigate risk. So grow has its set of sub-issues, efficiency has its sub-issues, and risk management and financial performance has its issues, all within the context of your ideal client's perspective, right? Which is gonna be their size, their life cycle, their industry, the functional requirements, but they're always going to be trying to achieve one of those goals. And if, and if you can hone in on, on those value goals and that becomes the issue by which you want to be known, it addresses so many of these tensions because it keeps you focused, it looks forward, and it looks at the present. It looks at existing clients, it looks at future clients, and it gives context to all the questions that you're going to, to ask. The ideal client is trying to solve this problem. What does that look like? And that's, that's the big question that all thought leadership is trying to answer. I, I just had this thought, what does it look like for your client? What does that look like for me and how I deliver it? Yeah. It's funny. I've had this, I'm going to go a little bit sideways and then we, we should wrap because we're running long, but... Uh, I've had this blog post in my head for a while that I haven't written yet that I probably will still try to write, and it's about features and benefits. And the compare and contrast that I want to share is, you remember the old, you got your chocolate and my peanut butter ads from recent? <laughs> yes. Right? Remember those? You yeah, know, I was just no, thinking about pe- those recently. I don't you know. You got your peanut butter and chocolate, right? So what are they selling? They're selling that the features of a Reese's peanut butter cup is peanut butter and chocolate. So I guess if I want peanut butter and chocolate, I'll, I'll buy that. Snickers. Snickers really satisfies. It satisfies your hunger. Oh, I'm hungry. It will make me less hungry. Maybe I should buy a Snickers. They're speaking to the benefit, right? Why do you need the Snickers bar in the first place? Now, I think that's actually the root of what we're talking about here. It's that simple. And and if you think about it, Reese's isn't advertising the peanut butter and your chocolate anymore. They haven't done that for 30 years. You know, so where you have to get as a marketer is this idea that you've got to speak to the client benefits 
of what you're trying to do. And I, and I, and I argue that sort of thought leadership at the end of the day is about that. It's about getting to the benefits that the client's trying to realize that you just highlighted. And I, we use those three in our firm messaging models now with our clients where we say, it's like, just pick one. Like at the highest level of your organization, pick one of those three and say, this is the benefit we deliver to clients. And please try not to pick two of them. Because I mean, I know you can do two. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know if that works real well. So yeah, can some say, well, it's all three. Yeah, just pick one at the highest level of your organization that explains this is this is how we help, you know, companies of this type. All right, well, we better wrap. I, I appreciate you going on this ride with me because as you know, my task is to try to bring some coherence to the madness of these tensions and help give firms a vision on how to solve for them. I will do that come November. So I will real quick kind of give a, a brief plug on the conference. So uh, I did this at the end of last session. Go to thoughtleadershipseminar.com if you want to hear more about this year's conference, Profiting from Thought Leadership. It's November 2nd through 4th in Dana Point, California, and stream live online. We have best practices talks from really great organizations, Salesforce, McKinsey, Accenture, Deloitte, Bain, Boston Consulting Group. Obviously, I'll be there giving a talk on thought leadership strategy that will be much shorter than today's webinar or today's podcast. So it'll be a lot clearer and more coherent once we hit November. So I appreciate Jeff going on the ride with me to help rein in my thoughts on how to approach these tensions, because I think that's it's going to be a great talk once it's all said and done. It is. And if you haven't read the blog post, I'll put a link in the show notes to it. Jason packs a lot of great thinking into very few words. It's an excellent blog post and you should read it. And real quick, podcast listeners do get a discount on attending. So if you want $500 off an in-person ticket, just use the phrase podcast before you select your ticket on the registration page. So hope to meet some of you there. And again, thanks Jeff for for going on this dive with me the last two weeks. We're going to pivot out of thought leadership into some new stuff next week, but it's been a lot of fun to to go back down this this wicket with you. My pleasure. I'll see you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh.